Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FYI. I'm Nicholas Gruss, an Associate Portfolio Manager at ARC, and today I'm joined by ARC analyst Frank Downing and our very special guest, Herman Narula, co-founder and CEO of Improbable. Um, And with that, let's just jump right into it because we have a lot to talk about. A lot is going on in this space. So Herman, we're going to pass to you. Could you just give us a quick background on yourself and what it is your company is building over at Improbable? Sure. So Improbable is making essentially an internet of metaverses. So with our M squared platform, we've made it possible for the first time to create metaverse experiences, which instead of just having like 10 or 100 people like um, Fortnite or Decentraland, can have up to 15,000 people all richly interacting, speaking with their own voices, present inside, uh, you know, really compelling and complex virtual spaces. These worlds uh, aren't isolated uh, on the M squared platform. You can actually connect them together and allow people to move between them, com- you know, do commerce between them. And along with powering the network and its technology, uh, which will be tokenized uh, as well, Improbable is also building metaverses with and for customers, notably Yuga Labs, where we're creating the other side metaverse, which will be running on the M squared network, benefiting from the technology, but also being interoperable uh, with other worlds on the network as well. In addition to that, Improbable has two other business areas that are worth mentioning. Um, you know, we're the leading provider of multiplayer expertise to about 60 different publishers globally, quite, uh, quite fast growing in that area. And you know, we're responsible for a lot of behind the scenes work on major shooting franchises. We built the multiplayer mode for Fall Guys, for example. So we've become, uh, we, we found ourselves in a good place to understand the technology problems of the metaverse. And lastly, um, we apply some of our technology to uh, defense and national security space, and that's a separate business. but an exciting other application of what we do. Yeah, thanks, Herman. That's a really helpful overview. Um, to, to give some of our listeners additional context, could you describe just at a high level the technology stack of the gaming industry? I think we've talked about game engines, for example, before. How does inter- Improbable interact with a game engine and the technology you're building, both that kind of underpins or scales game engines and also building on top of it as well, from what I understand? So you can picture an iceberg, right? Um, At the tip of the iceberg is what you see. It's the graphics of a game. And that is something game engines are very good at. They're very good at allowing creatives to create compelling looking worlds and then to run those worlds locally on your machine. As you think about the metaverse, you have to solve another much larger problem, which is, okay, great. We have all of these people looking at something on their screens, but how do we build this massive, deeply interactive, computationally intensive simulation that'll allow thousands of these people to interact together in a very rich world. That cannot fit on a game engine. And a game engine, in fact, is not designed to solve that problem technically. It's a little bit of a smorgasbord of locally running um, engine tools and other pieces that are mostly about authoring content. And when you think about the server side, 
there really isn't any sort of solution that operates at any any real scale. And there's no real answers to many problems ranging from how the hell do I operate with that many players, but also how do I run AI or physics or any of the backend pieces that need to go into doing it. So you can think of what we do as the all the stuff under the water in that iceberg. We've built a comp- computational platform with a very different tech stack um, to what the games industry is used to. One example is that uh, our platform can handle a billion messages a second uh, being processed on the back end. The normal standard in the industry is about 10,000 messages a second. So with those billion messages, we're able to, to handle a billion changes taking place within the world that need to be synchronized. And that could be people moving, thousands of them interacting and looking at each other, which requires an exponentially massive amount of messages. Um, you know, from the perspective of our listeners, if you want a comparison point, WhatsApp globally does a million messages a second. So it just shows you how, how hard the problem is. But you also have to solve other issues. How do you run the infrastructure and, and serve it to many different regions around the world? How do you handle bandwidth? We've invented new bandwidth uh, optimization algorithms. How do you render so many things on screen? So our technology handles things that plug into game engines, but also a lot of other pieces uh, in, in, you know, to create an end-to-end sort of metaverse platform. So what is it that you're doing differently that other game developers are not? You know, you're able to have, I, I think you just said, a billion messages per second versus some other services that don't compare at all to, or can't reach that type of scale. You're also, you know, hosting a single server world. And, you know, we'll get into this later when we talk about Yuga Labs and the beta you just did with the other side. But you're, you're, you're showing uh, use cases where you're having thousands of users in a concurrent space versus, and you had mentioned, you know, Fortnite. So let's use that example where Fortnite's only able to have roughly 100 to 150 concurrent users. So what is it that you're doing differently versus some of these other platforms out there? So one of our first insights is, I think, we're not a game engine company. So we recognize that actually trying to make the game engine do all of this is, is a fool's errand. You know, you're going to need a very different sort of effectively back-end game engine that isn't going to run on a single machine, but actually run on a cluster of machines. And so you're going to need to build the distributed systems foundations to handle that. And it's taken us years to get that right. You know, we're on the fifth generation of technology uh, we, you know, we had Spatial OS, which was our earlier tech, um, which was okay and ran reasonably well, but could do nothing like what we can now do with Morpheus. One of the other consequences of this, of this difference of approach, which is just think about the messages, think about the backend, don't worry about the engine, is that we've had to tap into a lot of areas of computer science that are not usual in the games industry. One example is um, we use a machine learning approach to actually learn how people move inside a world to on the fly create more efficient bandwidth compression approaches. So we can get bandwidth down to 350 kilobits per second per user uh, if they download a client, which means somebody in the third world can you know, go to a stadium and be surrounded by cricket fans. To achieve that has really been a, quite a strange and circuitous journey of technology. Um, you know, in, in fact, I'd say there are now areas of how this works that I'm completely unfamiliar with myself, uh, even having started the company like 10 years ago. There, there are new areas that are, that are really cutting edge. Um, even in rendering, you know, once again, we took a contrary view, which is, look, the game engines are just not designed to render thousands of very different looking characters. So we built a machine learning based approach that learns how characters are represented. And we combine that with hardware acceleration techniques uh, to, to make that work. I'd end by saying that I think um, it isn't so much that we're just taking a different approach. We're trying to solve a different problem. A lot of the games industry, the conventional games industry, doesn't think that large crowds uh, are going to be fun or valuable. They don't think that an event-based, uh, interconnected metaverse is an exciting proposition. You know, you've heard 
how many disparaging statements have come out from the games industry, from all the companies we know and love, both about the metaverse and about crypto and about all of these things. You know, they're very comfortable building games, really, like these siloed, valuable, but closed loops of, of, of engagement that operate very differently. You know, Fortnite wouldn't necessarily be more fun if 10,000 people were battling each other. But, you know, boy, is it more fun to be at a sporting match with 10,000 people. So one thing I think is interesting that you mentioned is that to kind of solve this gaming problem, you've had to tap into machine learning and AI and, and distributed kind of cloud systems. It's kind of like this convergence of many technologies kind of coming together to make this possible and build a new experience that wasn't before. Uh, would you kind of agree with that? It's, it's something that we kind of see across many different pockets of what we research. Yeah, I agree. I also think that the integration challenge, both from a human perspective of building teams that can traverse these different areas and being able to create technology like this that can still interconnect with game engines and serve the way that game engines like to develop, it's fiendishly hard. Um, you know, we, we really should have lost several times along the way. We, we've been really lucky that we've had breakthroughs and incredible talent who've, who've in some cases, disrupted our own, our own technology internally to kind of get us to this place. And just as one example, Testing a system like this is a nightmare. Um, how do you test a system that can only really be stretched by 15,000 live clients connecting into the world? You can't just run bots or AI because they don't really tell you anything. You need to actually simulate the load. So we had to design from scratch our own infrastructural testing machinery that can boot up thousands of cloud instances of full consumer machines, configure them to log into the system, and then behave like consumers in a way that is concealed from the environment itself. That entire infrastructure is like a product by itself that we have to build uh, just to do this. Um, you know, so again, that comes from having a very different problem to the problem that the traditional games industry is trying to solve. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, one thing I'd also ask is, you know, one way to drive performance is to very narrow the use case. How flexible is this platform? Can it work across multiple game engines and different frameworks or... Um, have you kind of like picked one thing to solve for and really maxed that out on the performance spectrum? The flexibility is actually one of the most important choices we made, and it made the problem a lot harder. So you, we don't, for example, reduce physics. In the other side demo on Saturday, you had full physics. You had colliding characters. We lessened how well you collided so that you didn't get boxed in by people, but it was, it was a full physical system. Voice chat, you know, we created our own custom solution to allow thousands of people to simultaneously speak in a spatialized environment where you can hear anyone, even people really far away, um, you know, blended into the environment on the back end. So this religious desire to maintain a highly flexible simulation rather than a game has made the journey a lot harder, but it now makes the final product a lot more flexible. Um, you know, we can service so many different use cases now without really needing to change much about the technology. It's not one thick platform. So we've decomposed everything, both commercially and technically. We've made the decision to make everything we're doing as modular as possible. So customers don't have to use everything. They can use parts of this and leverage it for some benefit while still using their own components for other parts. So in terms of, you know, the tech stack here and, and uh, I would say, you know, the game engines, Unity and, and Unreal, we'll, we'll choose those two as examples. What has been the response from the traditional gaming sector, given what you've built and how you're kind of in this co-opetition type of role where you're, you know, you're building this new platform for the next age of gaming, um, but you're plugging in with kind of the current platforms that most game developers use today. So how does this how does this like relationship work with the traditional gaming sector? 
So with the traditional engine companies, they're very much our allies and, and our friends and we're even our customers in some cases for some of our services. Like we've helped build Epic Online Services, for example, and we service many studios Epic has acquired. Um, so, you know, we have a strong relationship when it comes to traditional games industry. When it comes to the metaverse, massive events, interoperability, Web3 enabled, these solutions I've just described to you of large crowds and large pieces. I'd say the games industry just isn't all that interested. They don't really care that much. Uh, you know, after we do events like, um, like the one we did on Saturday and the previous events, the people that call us up are fashion brands, music companies, even bands in some cases, sports leagues, you know, newscasters, people who see the immediate benefit of bringing this type of experience to culture and to technology. The number one response I've had from the games industry is essentially, cool, you can do this miraculous thing. Why is that fun? You know, why, why do I want to be in a, in, a, in a giant universe? And which you might find strange given how much a lot of these companies have taken advantage of the metaverse hype to boost both their stocks and their ability to attract funding. But this is kind of the brilliance of the position they're in. If you're a large um, private investor and you want to stake in something that feels like a metaverse stock, what do you buy? I mean, game engines, I, I guess, are the closest proxy to something that's a tool or a pick and shovel that'll apply to the space. But there's really a dearth of effort. You know, there is no, there's no product announced or in the works, to our knowledge, by any game engine provider or cloud company that can support this kind of scale that's not even an objective for a lot of these businesses, which is so strange to me um, as somebody deep in the sector. It seems like a really unusual uh, decision on their part. Okay. So you've touched on it a bit and you've thrown out the term here, the metaverse, right? We hear about it all the time. Uh, a lot of people have you know, very different opinions on what exactly the metaverse is. There's a lot of confusion about the term. It's, it's used to describe AR and VR and all of these different ways it's, you know, being thrown about in the industry. So would love to just get your thoughts on, you know, what exactly is the metaverse? When do we kind of cross over to that chasm versus, you know, the experiences we're used to today? Um, what makes the metaverse different than what we're used to today? That's a really great question. And I'll say, I think that not only is this topic incorrectly handled in the mainstream, it's dangerously incorrect in the mainstream because it leads to potentially very foolish investment decisions uh, on the part of companies looking to take advantage of the hype because they end up putting their capital in areas that don't represent the value uh, areas that I think uh, you could see there. So I'll give you a sense of my, my definition. I cover this a lot in my book, Virtual Society, because I believe it's so important. But, you know, I'd start by talking about what the metaverse isn't. In terms of the, the metaverse, it's good to start by understanding what it isn't. I think if we define the metaverse as just any old collection of 3D environments with avatars running around, we have a definition so loose as to be useless. Does that mean every existing video game is a metaverse? Does that mean on every online game is? You know, it, it, it's, it's an unhelpful definition. So I would, I would probably dig in a bit deeper and say that, look, I don't think the thing to focus on here is just the experiences, but actually the value and the purpose of those experiences. So to me, the metaverse is a collection of related experiences that specifically augment and enhance existing communities, real world culture, and basically the kinds of activities people are enjoying today that go beyond just entertainment, just um, fun, but also do all sorts of what I would call fulfillment. So psychological fulfillment that we get from making and having deep relationships, from being able to make meaningful choices, from being able to actually feel a sense of accomplishment. When you, when you put it that way, when you think about the metaverse as being a network of meaning, a network of related objects, people, events, and experiences, whose value depends on the other things in that network, you can see why existing video games don't really fit that paradigm very well. They, they are very closed off from one another. They don't benefit from interconnection. If you connected Halo and World of Warcraft together, that's bad for Halo and bad for World of Warcraft. Neither community would want that. 
neither game developer would ever accept that. So, you know, for, for, for a metaverse to be valuable, you need all these experiences which actually de- depend upon and benefit from each other. And that's why music, fashion, and sport are such wonderful categories because they already depend upon each other. You already take your fashion clothes, uh, you know, from a brand like LVMH into um, a, ba- a baseball match or into, uh, you know, a football game. You already see crossover between these celebrities. You already see relevance and cross-benefit in these IPs mixing and interacting. So a metaverse then is, is this network of meaning and collection of, of things and experiences which are made better by that meaning. But another very important aspect of defining a metaverse separate from a video game is value transfer. The benefit of a metaverse is being able to bring value in and out efficiently, right? It's buying a t-shirt inside one space and doing so when I went to a concert from, let's say, U2, and then taking that t-shirt somewhere else. But it's also having now formed a relationship with a friend inside that concert, being able to take that relationship into a different context as well. So that idea of a, of a valuable interconnected network facilitating kind of interworld trade leads you to very different investment choices. It leads you to very different notions of where the value will lie. And it's made me quite convinced that the existing games industry, it's not just that they're not well set up to do this. It's not really in their interest to do this. It's kind of anti the business models that exist within the games industry today. So one, one word I didn't hear you mention that I thought you were about to is blockchain technology. Uh, so beyond the kind of visual audio perception of being in a massive virtual world, how critical is blockchain technology to the metaverse and kind of facilitating this value transfer? So I like my definition to be quite pure and separate from the implementation details, but let's dig into how you would implement it and why blockchain is so important. Um, in order for what I've described to work, you're talking about different enterprises, different businesses, different creatives, somehow collaborating to create value in a network where the rules of that network will intensely affect their ability to make money, right? Today, we saw Minecraft, uh, Microsoft banning uh, the use of NFTs in Minecraft. That meant a huge amount of revenue and an entire business just evaporated in smoke because my- Microsoft decided that it should. Whether you agree or disagree with that decision, it shows you the instability of companies depending on other platforms. And, and the result of that, very simply, very economically, is sure, I might build on a platform like that, but I'm not going to invest 100 million, 200 million on content which is running on a platform that I don't control, partly because no investor will ever give me that money because they'll say, hey, there's a huge risk to your business running away. So in order, how do we get around that problem in order to attract investment and build this interconnected network? Well, the network can't be owned by any one member of the network. It requires some form of collective ownership some form of contractual or practical security, and some form of very fine-grained way of sharing value uh, between network participants. This is the benefit of blockchain. This is why the M2 network that we're building is, uh, is Web3, because it allows us to give certainty, control, and authority to the network of creatives we're working with in a much more fine-grained way than if it was a closed platform. The other benefit of blockchain, the other very important benefit of blockchain, is being able to allow for a fulfillment economy where experiences that require users to do labor become suddenly much more appealing and valuable. Great example is, you know, moderators in in a concert, right? If we can put 100,000 people into a room and now we need moderators, who's going to pay the moderators, right? How do they get paid? How do they extract value out of the system? You know, how does that work? And, you know, implying that the person building the concert world is also going to make the banking infrastructure to support, you know, the, you know, the, the KYC and all the rest of making that happen is ridiculous. So blockchain allows us to basically disentangle the different functions necessary um, to be done to support the economy of a metaverse and put them in the hands of different companies who can use the blockchain as their medium of value exchange um, in, in, in figuring out how they work together to make that happen. 
I don't actually see the proposition as being all that consumer orientated. Like I, I think the final metaverse consumers won't know or care if it runs on a blockchain or not. It's like open source software, you know, it's going to be behind the scenes. So it's like this uh, infrastructure that supports all the experiences you have in the metaverse and really makes them meaningful, even if it's not apparent to the end user. I think one thing that we commonly like think of is, you know, the average user doesn't know if they're interacting with a MongoDB database or an Oracle database. They probably in the end state won't know if they're on Solana or, or, or which Ethereum layer two. Exactly. I mean, why should they know? They don't even know how. I, mean, I wouldn't want a user to know or understand how a microchip works. Why would I want my grandmother to understand how the blockchain works? I just want her to go to a concert that she that she enjoys, right? So I, I'm with you on that. I, I also think it's really, really important to, to think about how fundamental this problem is. Either you're going to do a Netflix and pay for all the content yourself or license the content from, from external parties and spend hundreds of billions of dollars recreating all of human culture in your own pocket or, you know, closed metaverse, or you're going to somehow encourage those people to invest that money themselves. And the only way they will do that is if they have ownership. And the only way you can give them ownership is by creating structures that allow for it. And that's why I see blockchain as effectively a necessary prerequisite for a credible metaverse effort, um, one that hopes to capture the overall talent. And this is, you know, something we focus on a lot is this concept around non-fungible tokens and the blockchain. In this Web3 space, it really is about digital ownership. If you can convince consumers that you know what they're purchasing is now theirs and no one can ever take it away from them, then that's going to increase the likelihood that they continue to spend on these virtual items. Um, so want to now maybe shift gears and talk about this NFT space and your partnership uh, with Yuga Labs. And maybe you can give a bit of a background there for you know not everyone is familiar uh, with the Board Ape Yacht Club collection, but just would love for you to you know walk us through this partnership, what it means for the space, and then how it you know fits into your M2 platform as well. So uh, Yuga Labs is far and away the most uh, value owns the most valuable collections of uh, crypto assets and communities within Web3, and at least to my knowledge, these include the Board Apes Yacht Club, which uh, you know the floor price is some you can buy a house for that, and you know the, the holders are not just people who are speculative investors. These are celebrities community members, people have started business off the back of this. If you've ever been to the, I went to the uh, meetup in NYC, you know, there were queues of two hours of people to get in and physical, physically get in to kind of interact with the founders and other people. So they've built this, I would call it um, the first breakout brand in Web3. And it's a, it's a different kind of brand. It has a really strong grassroots community kind of ownership component to it. Um, and I think the natural next step for them was creating a metaverse, a universe where that IP can come to life and where experiences can happen in the digital domain that enhance the ownership of, of people who bought assets, but also open up the IP to so many new users. And so our collaboration really consists of the following. Improbable is the game developer, if you will, with one of our internal studios of other sides. So we built the content that you saw there in partnership with, uh, with Yuga. We're also the technology provider via the M2 network. And other side itself will be the first anchor metaverse in the M2 network. So you will have out-of-the-box interoperability between objects and characters in the other side metaverse and any other network, any other metaverse that is, uh, that is part of M2. So we've solved the problem of how do I move from one world to the other by having a common technical basis uh, between those worlds. I mean, that's pretty incredible. So do you look at this, you know, I guess, what does the time horizon look like for these types of projects? You know, there's a lot of hype out there about the other side and, you know, what you guys are building. And I think, you know, just watching the, the beta and, and, you know, having that incredible technical capability that you bring to this project, 
But what is like a realistic timeline for people out there that are watching this to really understand, you know, you know, hey, there's a lot that needs to go into this before you have this fully fledged metaverse out there. I think we're moving incredibly quickly. You know, in a couple of months, we were able to create an example of 4,500 people live all over the world interacting with um, performers and actors in a full experience end to end that we felt was of a very high quality, although yet still a beta. Um, they're going to do more events. You know, it's all on their roadmap. And I don't think it's as it's necessary to be completely finished before we can start to create really tremendous value for the community and for other people. So we're taking quite a radical model here. The games industry traditionally takes like four years to make an MMO. You know, we've been through this cycle many times ourselves with our customers and, and us. It's a very cumbersome, very expensive, very hit and miss way of making content. I think you have been very smart in working with us to create early access events and experiences, which can stand alone, can be valuable, can grow the community and can create opportunities. So I think over the next year, we're going to actually be getting ready in public pretty efficiently. And I think I, I think the project's moving a lot faster than, than we thought, partly because the technology is already finished. So it's really just a question of making content. We'll be announcing other partners on M2 actually pretty soon as well. So I think the whole network will start to come, come to life pretty fast. That's awesome. And it actually leads into what I was just going to ask. Something you mentioned was interoperability. And before you gave an example of it wouldn't really make sense to connect Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. Uh, how does interoperability work in the M2 context? And how have you kind of solved for that um, bridging kind of items between worlds? So one of our insights is that um, not all developers are accessing the network at the same level. So you're going to end up with large partners who are building entire metaverses, collections of worlds, where they want to set the rules, have an economy, have their own currency, be able to do a lot of things. So the M2 network can bring on these, we call them domain operators at a top level, and give them the authority to run essentially their own metaverses. Now, underneath the hood, they've agreed certain terms in order to become part of the network. And those terms guarantee interoperability from the perspective of developers. I'll give you some examples. Although we haven't been fully public about this, I can, I can say a little bit about it now. You'll be able to take your character and your uh, visualization of that character from any world to any world at the option of the receiving world and the user. So that means you can take your customized characters from an NFT project on another side. You can go to another world and vice versa. You can bring that IP back over. Um, and that's, that's de facto agreed. Like that's just the rules of joining the network, which is really exciting. And because of that, and because Improbable is supporting the development of these first worlds, we can guarantee that that's going to work really seamlessly. Beyond that, though, um, worlds themselves can create all kinds of content, both directly and indirectly through SDKs. We've made sure there's enough technical interoperability and similarity in the foundations of each world. And even though they could look very different, even have potentially quite different graphical representations, they're using the same schema and models for how they think about objects. And that creates many opportunities for commercial and practical interoperability. I mean, and to make it quite literal, you can click on a portal and jump from one world to the other in our current system. Uh, which is really cool. So you can move from one 15,000 person space to another 15,000 person space with a different company in less than three seconds uh, on, a, on a streaming client. So the, the rules we've created kind of allow for that. The other thing we've realized is that this is a platform of platforms and the individual domain operators may want to set quite different rules. Maybe you want to make a child-friendly, highly protected context or environment. Great, you can do that. You can set those rules. And um, maybe you want to make a much more open metaverse where anyone can do as they please. You can do that too. But then it's up to other metaverse operators as to how much they want to enable uh, interoperability with you in that context. Is this an open source standard? Like, could anybody that's even not building on M2, for example, leverage kind of some of the, the concepts that you've built? Yeah, we're going to be creating a completely, we've already put this in the light paper for, for other side, but the object standards and the scripting approach is going to be completely open source. So we're taking a very different view from some other companies. We think it has to work 
this needs to be something where we remove the creative as much as possible from thinking about game engines and game tools. Like you need to be able to write basically HTML style descriptions of objects and have them just work out of the box with the network. Um, so you can think of our philosophy as a very pragmatic hybrid. You know, we want this pro level, you know, um, SDK access where you can configure anything at the enterprise level, but actually for most users, they should just have an out of the box uh, solution. And all of the open standards are, are actually open standards. They're not proprietary. They'll be completely available. We will respect them. And if other people want to, they can. And when it comes to governance, we are going to gradually decentralize, um, well, perhaps partially decentralize and partially um, you know, delegate ownership uh, over the network and its rules over time to a consortium of partners and the community. In terms of what's still ahead, are there any roadblocks in terms of you know, building this type of scale and this type of metaverse experience? You know, when you're talking about interoperability, different worlds, being able to you know, just jump into a portal, I mean, this is all sounding like, you know, ready player one when I when I think about it. So I have to imagine, you know, you've solved a, a ton already, but what are some of the roadblocks still ahead? And then, you know, what does the end state of this look like? How big, you know, can this can this be it, given like current technological limitations? Are we talking millions of users, billions in, in these virtual worlds? Like what what exactly are we looking at? we already doubled the capacity from half a billion to a billion messages a second. So we can support, uh, in theory, like probably double the, more than double the user count, not just with that message increase, but with other planned upgrades we have. So I, I feel confident that uh, like, you know, that 30, 40,000 people in a dense environment where they can all interact at the same time in the same spot is, is, is straightforward. 100,000 is a little harder, but within our kind of means and understanding of how to do, a million? I don't know. There might be bandwidth and other. There are basically pipe. There are limitations to what people's machines can do, right? Um, but a hundred thousand, I think, is a neat is a neat target, and already is thousands of times better than anyone else uh, in this in this space. The biggest hurdles for us right now are not technical. They really boil down to us rapidly commercializing the network. We, we can't keep up with demand uh, fast enough. We don't have enough people to service all the people that want to build content, and we haven't opened up the SDK yet. We haven't even launched the token yet. So. For us, it's now entirely about industrializing this process and, of course, making sure we nail other side and to keep up the community confidence in, in our ability to deliver. And then in terms of commercialization, what does the business model for this type of platform look like? Are you going to operate kind of as this app store where you take a fee or, you know, if I jump into a portal, is there going to be some type of like toll fee um, and that, you know, uh, you know, is there like transportation fees? Like exactly what type of business model are we looking at here? Here's where I would say, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot in the book as well, but it's also part of the philosophy of how we operate. Existing online platforms are like pyramids. All of the value is sucked up at the bottom left, right? So if I build a business on top of Roblox, who's making the majority of the money per user? Roblox is, right? I think it's almost as much as 80% in some contexts. It's not the end of the world. I mean, you'll attract users who are going to be basically hobbyist or cottage industry people. Like from their perspective, the, the access the platform is giving them is worth the cut that they're taking. But you won't attract, you know, professional creators, companies, huge ecosystems to build on top. We recognize that. Hence, we're taking the opposite view. It's like an upside down pyramid. Um, the platform itself is going to take a tiny transaction fee. It's going to share that transaction fee with all token holders as well. So it'll be a chance for large companies to even buy into that transaction fee or even individuals to buy into it if they want to. And that basic transaction fee is just for access to the technology, the network, and the interoperability. And it won't seem like much at all. It'll fit into basically every business model. It'll be the smallest fee of that kind, I think, anywhere in industry, single-digit percentage most likely. Um, but beyond that, um, there'll be all sorts of optional services that us and our partners will provide that'll give people the opportunity to potentially simplify their metaverse construction, but then take on board other services. 
you want automated moderation, if you want to, um, you know, for example, use plugin financial services, a lot of these things are going to be a composable ecosystem of additional services. When it comes to the, the um, discovery and distribution, here again, we take a radical view. You must be able to own your user. If you can't own the relationship with your user, if you can't freely distribute access to your world, you don't really own your world. So M2 is designed to sit in the background. You could technically just share a link on Twitter the way other side did with their own website, Earl, and you can just play it. Like if a lot of people who played other side probably didn't even know it related, it was on the M2 network, right? They had their own access point to it. And this is where I see, you know, sports leagues, big entertainment companies and brands wanting to have their own front door. I also take an even more radical view, which is I just don't think stores are valuable. Um, you know, I know, I know you know the, the play happening with the Epic store, for example, to compete with the Steam store. None of that makes sense in the context of the metaverse, because the metaverse is not a, a collection of distinct commercial games potentially running on their own clients. The metaverse is a network of interrelated places, people, and things that are freely blending between those spaces. So I prefer a more a link-based discovery model, where actually social media is being used to you know, literally drop a link, come join me here in this spot, you click it, you jump into the world. Of course, people will distribute clients as well, but, and maybe even have stores, but more power to them. You know, that's not something I want to take a cut of. That's something I want to enable to happen as much as possible. Yeah, that's really funny you mentioned that. Like, I've often seen like the VR demos of people walking through a virtual Walmart and they're like picking things off the shelf to check out with them. And I think like, I kind of like just searching stuff on Amazon. It seems like in the web context, it's, there's a better discovery mechanism. A hundred percent. I'd like to see a search bar and, and, and some link sharing. You know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't understand why I should think about it as a store. This is particularly true when you consider the majority of the content isn't going to be made by the developers of the metaverses. It can be made by everybody else. Uh, you know, the people who are creating content on top. And yeah, th this is why I think we have a shot. It's not because we have the best tech or because we have the best partners, you know, you know, we hopefully have those things. I think it's because nobody else wants to do things our way. Um, you know, they, they, you know, I could mail this business plan to the top five gaming companies and they just laugh me out the room. They, they aren't interested in this approach, um, which is amazing for, for me as a builder. You know, one thing that we kind of uh, maybe skipped over at the beginning or didn't go into much for, for our listeners is, is what exactly this M2 platform will look like. Uh, you mentioned a token. Is M2 going to be a blockchain? Is it services built on top? Uh, what exactly does M2 look like? So M2 is the network, the, the sort of big database of objects, identities, and state and processes that share that state between different metaverses and also a bunch of services, unrelated services actually, that are necessary and helpful in you building out your, your connected metaverse. Um, the basic kind of layer of information, commerce and state, it's too high in volume and involves too many transactions to fit on the blockchain at the get-go. So what we're doing is building kind of a hybrid model. You can import and export ownership onto the blockchain, you can bring NFT projects in and out, um, but there's also a ton of, of, of more centralized services that are just highly performant that can handle uh, the scale that we need to get to. Over time, we'd even decentralize those. But in order to give people confidence in them, they're actually not going to be owned by Improbable. They're going to be owned by a new entity we've set up, which is the M2 entity, whose founding members will gradually have effectively bylaws on how they modify the terms of service or rules of that network. So it's going to look a little bit like a sort of government, uh, you know, with, with enfranchisement among, among partners and developers, like an industry affiliation in some ways. Initially, we're in control, but over time, we're gonna, we have to let that control go if we want the, the environment to be, to be trusted. It is, has its own token, the M2 token. That token is going to be used behind the scenes by metaverses to settle commerce between each other and to support um, basically all of those situations where you want a metaverse to respect in other metaverses, objects, land, or properties. So think of it as like a reserve currency, in a sense, for the metaverse. Um, 
cosmetically for users, they'll have their own currencies. You could use ApeCoin on another side. You could use whatever coin you like, really, um, with, within different spaces. So, so think of M2 as like a metaverse as a service platform uh, with, with a shared governance and interoperability structure. Yeah, conception that makes a lot of sense. I, I think the, the progressive decentralization approach is a realistic take of where we are. I think, you know, saying you can do everything in a fully decentralized manner leads to chaos and you get stuck in one place very quickly when you have to, you're, <laughs> you're at the wisdom of the crowds. And also a billion transactions a second, you know, I, I, we're not, we're not even at a hundred yet on, on kind of, you know, commercial blockchains. So, you know, I think blockchains are really good when you want a permanent like ledger of ownership and they're a very important part of what we're going to be doing with, with them too. They're going to keep honest the centralized service. But the central service needs to be focused on on execution speed and efficiency. Yeah, a lot of the value comes into specifying ownership and having that exit option from the centralized intermediary rather than necessarily facilitating every possible transaction on a blockchain just because you want to. <laughs> Talking about throughput, um, I don't know if you have a bid, but across the you know the competitive layer one smart contract blockchains, does Improbable or yourself have a position there of where they see the future going, where activity is going to move for different use cases? So I think for us, we, we see a couple of, of, I think we're really early. And I think um, it's very important to highlight that beyond speculative use cases or semi-speculative use cases, there is incredibly small amounts of activity currently happening relative to other platforms and, and commercial infrastructure in the technology world on blockchains. They have huge potential. I'm a massive believer. But no chain yet is in, in my view, in some unassailable position. Um, I think that the most likely winners are going to be chains that blend a very resilient, very um, decentralized uh, layer with some concessions to ease of use and efficiency and operation. I've been really impressed with Ethereum. Uh, I think I've talked to a few people who are interested in more modern chains, you know, and I really like what the Aptos and Mistin teams are doing or in touch with them. Actually, we think their work is really, really cool and potentially can support future decentralization. But the thing never to underestimate with Ethereum is like, if you go into a city now and you look at a road network or a power grid or a sewage system, you're not looking at the best design. You're looking at the one that survived 2000 years of a city. You know, like everyone wishes the roads were different or the sewage was different or the power grid was different, but they have their different properties here in their evolution. And Ethereum has survived. It's been incredibly resilient and it's been incredibly good at upgrading and improving. And I think that's a huge advantage it has over, for example, um, you know, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin kind of maximalists that are there. That said, I, I'm not a big believer in a lot of the alt chains that have popped up that are like Ethereum, but more scale at the cost of centralization. They have a lot to prove. Their ecosystems don't, to me, yet feel robust. And, and you know, one chain that will remain nameless. But if your chain is crashing, like that's not good. You can't do that. You can't, you can't have a blockchain crash. That's like, it's like having a hospital crash. Nobody, nobody wants to see that happen, you know, in, in context. But yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm a really big believer in some of the pull out of Facebook, the, the XDM teams like Mistin and Aptos. They seem very smart and they have some very interesting technology as well. Um, but again, a huge problem in building an ecosystem. Sounds like we share a lot of beliefs in that space. <laughs> and then just in, in terms of, you know, how exactly the M2 platform interacts with blockchains, is it fair to think of, you know, if you're, you're working with Yuga Labs, these are, you know, Ethereum or uh, ERC-721 and 1155 tokens. How exactly does that, you know, communication between the blockchain and M2 and, you know, the other side, inter like, how is that, how does that fit together? Yeah. So let's start by what an NFT is, right? So and just for, for everyone listening, an NFT is not what you think. It's not a magic sword with all of the behavior and property of that magic sword. It is literally just a piece of data that tells you who owns some, some token 
and that token has an ID and there's maybe a link to some sort of other, maybe IPFS or something, which contains like an image or a file or something. Let's compare that with a magic sword in a video game. Now, magic sword in a video game has tons of state. Uh, it has all sorts of properties. It's mass, it's damage, it's model. It could have some temporary state. It's actually potentially being acted on by nine or 10 different processes. It's being updated in different ways. And um, of course, it has an owner as well. Is it currently out in your hands? Is it in your inventory? Are you logged in even? Do you own it? You know, what, what's, you know, what, what position is it in? None of that information can be stored on the blockchain because the blockchain just can't handle that quantity of data uh, in any efficient way. I think you'd pay like hundreds of dollars to put that even, you know, on, onto Ethereum, you know, and, and to use a scaling solution, I guess you could, but it becomes more complicated to think about how you make that uh, mutable. So what we're trying to do is create a notion of a virtual object with an open object standard that the M2 network understands. And then you can associate that virtual object with an NFT. So, you know, you can define ownership in an ironclad way on the blockchain, but the actual live running state of that object is something the M2 network handles for you initially in a centralized way, and then later in a more decentralized fashion. That object will have two representations. One will be like an open object standard that won't care about what game engine you're in and will cover the most important details of the object. It kind of, it's like a recipe that teaches each game engine how to conjure that object in a useful way in the context of their game. And the other will be like the live running state of the object inside a game engine, which will be basically in, in memory in a, in a game engine. So think of it like an onion with layers. And at the very center of the onion is the NFT. And then there are layers of more data and more state that are handled in more places. And I'll just say like no one, no one seems to have handled this problem yet. No one has credibly put forward this limitation. Everyone is arguing that like their NFT is hop, skip and a jump away from being this rich virtual object in the metaverse. So I just... You know, I really feel it's important to highlight just how much of a gap we need to fill with the M2 network. So I'm going to just start spitballing here and please feel free to correct me because I'm taking all of this in in real time. And something just occurred to me that, you know, what you're building with the M2 platform in a way is kind of like a social media platform, but, it, you know, just levels more immersive in that, you know, in order to attract more and more users to the M2 platform, one, you need to sign on, you know, this content and IP working with Yuga Labs is a great way to kind of bring in, you know, already, you know, uh, already a, a big user base. But in terms of, you know, how important it is to be early here, it seems that if M2 can reach a scale that, you know, Facebook reached back in the day, um, you know, you have this ability to kind of reach escape velocity and beat out because I'm assuming there's going to be other attempts at building out metaverses, um, but you seem very early to this in terms of the technical builds. And, you know, we already have, I just mentioned Facebook, but you have Meta trying to build out their kind of own world with horizons and everything they're doing in AR and VR. But assuming that you can reach a certain number of users, then value will continue to accrue there. Because if I think about my own use case of, you know, Facebook back in the day, I signed on because that's where my friends were, right? Like I didn't, you know, I stopped using MySpace and I moved to Facebook because that's where all of the engagement went and that's where all my friends went. So in a way, you have to build that social network around M2 and these virtual worlds or you, you're, the metaverse you're building because there's going to be other competing metaverses. And am I wrong in this take or is this a bad kind of analogy? I think what I'd say that you're identifying that a network effect is potentially very powerful in this space and quite defensible. But I think it's even cooler than that. So we don't even really need to build a network effect. Um, the really interesting thing is if we focus as we are doing on uh, big cultural institutions, brands, sports, whatever, 
Um, let's suppose we were to sign up a major sports league, just hypothetically, that said, you know what, we want to build metaverse experiences here with you, even if it weren't exclusive. Due to the nature of the network, the fact that any object you buy is interoperable, you're going to get people who buy a, you know, I'm just going to make something up here, but let's say an NFL shirt or an English Premier League shirt. They now own that shirt. They can take that shirt into other side. They're making friends in that context and, and having that experience. Suddenly, if you're building your own metaverse content, wouldn't you want to be part of the network where you can tap into that audience of all of the people who are fans of that sport or who like a Board Apes Your Club? Now, another network doesn't have that. You know, it doesn't have that community. It doesn't have that IP. So immediately, you're going to be building from a position where you're needing to attract users away from that. And if we can keep the fees low enough and the bother of joining as minimal as can conceivably be done. So you're really, it kind of is your own metaverse, right? You don't really even have to advertise very much that you're, you're part of our network. Suddenly, it becomes kind of a no-brainer. So I, I'm hopeful that if we bring on board a few of the right-thinking partners in this space as we prove this out more, we can have quite a strong network effect with quite a small user base. Um, just just from the uh, the IP and the partners that are that are part of it, I will say, of course, you know, this description of a metaverse race that keeps coming up. I am convinced everyone is running a different race. You know, Facebook is kind of doing the long jump, and they're like focused on VR and AR. They they aren't talking about building anything like M two. They're not interested so far in incorporating crypto in a big way into their metaverse plans that we've seen. They haven't talked a lot about um, large concurrency or even or even kind of a wide access. So they're running one race, and you've got Epic Games and Microsoft talking about building a gaming metaverse, right? Linking together these games, you know, within Fortnite, that type of audience, that type of experience. That's again, a very different, a very different, you know, metaverse. And then you have Roblox building kind of a kids focused, closed platform, you know, with, with, with mechanics that are not intended to attract enterprise, although that's now an area they're going after. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we're on the same racetrack, you know? So I think with this very early revolution, just like with the early internet, you know, the trick wasn't being early necessarily. It was being right about the formula of where value will come from. You know, Google didn't just have the best technology. Other companies didn't think that a search engine without a directory structure was a valuable thing to have. You know, Facebook wasn't out, you know, didn't outcompete Microsoft, Google, and every other major tech company through their rapid execution. Nobody thought that a student, you know, photo sharing site would rule the world. Like it didn't, it wasn't logical, right? You know, even Microsoft, you know, there was a, was one of the first companies to make almost all of its revenue from software at a really big scale. People didn't think that just being software and not owning the hardware was magically going to result in, in a defensible market position. So, you know, this is where I, where I think what we're doing with Improbable and M2 is, is powerful. It's not just because we're early, it's because nobody thinks we're right. How much importance do you place on kind of the AR, VR capabilities in making the metaverse a reality? I think for a lot of people who don't play games and don't play immersive experiences, especially investors and big executives at large media companies, AR and VR is an easy sell because it's tangible. They, they understand it. I'll actually be there. Okay, that, that sounds better. And I'll be walking around the environment and it feels more like the real world. I can get behind that, right? I, I think it's something of, uh, of a misconception that the metaverse is even largely about AR and VR. Um, I use two terms to think about this. One is presence and one is immersion. So Immersion is what VR and AR gives you. It's the feeling that the world is real, right? But if we look at the most successful games over the last 10 years, the most successful communities, Minecraft, Roblox, Fortnite, they have crapper graphics than the games that came before them. They've intentionally downgraded those graphics. Why? To make the most accessible, widely available worlds they can, because they recognize that the value comes from the mass of people easily interacting with this environment and the meaning and value that they create in doing so. Um, presence is different. Presence is not like immersion. Presence is the feeling that the world thinks you are real. 
And that's why we activated voice with 4,500 people. Not because you're going to hear what the guy in the corner says clearly, but because you're going to feel like all those people are really there and you're really there. And my bet is on presence. Um, our technology works really well with VR and AR. We have one of the biggest VR games in the world running on our tech. Uh, Zenith um, launched earlier this year, running on our older tech, actually on Spatial OS, not on M2, but just to show you that the tech works in that context. I just don't believe in it that much. I think, you know, eventually there'll be really good VR headsets and they'll become part of the equation. But I don't want to reach people who can buy $2,000 headsets. I want to reach people with mobile phones in the third world. That's who I want to reach. I want to reach everybody, people who love sport, people who love these communities and can, can't be part of them. Yeah, it's a really interesting framing. And it's something we internally debate all the time is, and we were actually just having this, this debate yesterday in terms of like active versus passive consumption. And if you were to kind of, you know, build a scale on one end, you have passive consumption. So something that's just very easy. And I would, you know, throw mobile gaming in there. Um, and then on the other side of that scale, you have active. And I would say the most active style of gaming is probably VR or, you know, the Nintendo uh, Wii right? Where you're, you have to stand up, you have to get off the couch. And the fact of the matter is most people would rather, you know, sit down, you know, scroll TikTok or play a mobile game. And that, that's why you see these, you know, economies of scale in this more passive style of consumption. So I think you're right in like questioning, like how big could VR get if people are so willing or, or not that willing to, you know, throw on a headset and sweat in it for hours, right? Like it's a very hard use case to build out you have to build out something that's extremely attractive uh for for users exactly and that's the real issue here it's not that it doesn't have merit as a long-term investment direction and i thank facebook for the corporate welfare of eating all of the capex costs of discovering how vr will work so that some future manufacturer can do it cheaper and give it to us all um you know i, I thank you very much facebook but i don't think that I, to your point if you're telling me you know here's a threshold experience that everyone will adopt what is it? Okay, do a meeting in VR. How much better does that meeting have to become? How much more comfortable? How much more relaxed before people will bother with that versus Zoom? It would have to be two, three generations ahead of, of where they are. Whereas if we take a look what we're doing with the M2 network and the cell, here's my cell, you know, you can hang out with The Rock live with a thousand other fans and hear him talk about his new movie and maybe he notices you and maybe he interacts with you and you just have to click a link on social media to do that. Will you pay me $1 as a fan of The Rock to go do that? That's a much easier sell because you're providing people with experiences they can't have somewhere else. And this, I think, is the real issue. You know, if even the people who are proponents of VR, they're proposing VR use cases that, that are 10 years out, you know, propose use cases that are, that are, that are relevant now. You know, could, could you see professionals using it in, you know, as content creators? Absolutely. That could be a great use case that's worthy of, you know, sweating in a box for a little while. And I just finished on one point here, which is to say, look, I know a lot of the people listening to the podcast are likely investors or passionate about the space in different contexts. We're dealing with a very unusual situation here. If, like me, you're high conviction on the metaverse, you're actually very supply constrained in what you can invest in to tangibly make that bet. And that, that is leading to some really strange decisions, some really odd valuations for some companies, some really weird behavior when it comes to crypto. Because we all have this passion, but we don't have anything to invest in that actually tangibly reflects that passion. And we're forced into weird things like Facebook is a metaverse stock now, apparently. Like, you know, no, it's not. It's an advertising play, right? In, in, any, in any kind of basic environment. So I, I think it's going to be very important to see more companies become public. And, you know, I'd like to get there with Improbable. You know, we're already you know, now very close to profitability. So I think, I think there's a pathway there for other companies to start becoming credible alternatives. Yeah. And just one last point on this AR VR debate, you know, when you're competing against reality, 
that's a really it's very hard, right? Like it's very hard to to build a solution that's better than reality itself, you know. So that's like if you want to get like very meta about this, right? Like that's what it boils down to at the end of the day. When you say that you're going to build a meeting solution in VR, well, guess what? For me to sit there with a seven pound headset on, or two, it's two pounds, two pounds now, but I'm it better be better than it's it, it has to be better than what I'm used to in a real meeting. Um, and I think, you know, looking at like the solution we're using today where it's Zoom, it's not pretending to be better than an in-person podcasting solution. It's just a solution to bridge the gap between you not being in person. Um, so that's like, you know, where I always come, like that's what I come back to. Um, and I, I'm still very bullish for AR and VR in the long term. But again, it's long-term play. No, I, I I totally agree with you on that in terms of um, in terms of where the focus should be. I wanted to make sure to ask one thing before we wrap up, and I don't know how you've had time for this with everything you've been building, but you published a book recently, Virtual Society. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's coming out in October, and it's uh, available for pre-order now. But yeah, I, I um wanted to, but but pre-order away if you're listening. Um, so um, what I wanted to do was to take a very alternative view to the metaverse. There are some books coming out now, Matthew Ball's book, um, and others. I love him. I think. A lot of what he's contributed to the space is really valuable. But all of these narratives basically say, what if Ready Player One became our economy? And they, they start from this idea that the metaverse is the new internet and it's an extension of video games. I wanted to take a completely different view. And I wanted to root that view in history and psychology and say, look, what is the fundamental point of a virtual experience? Why do human beings even care about this stuff? Why do they want them? What does it relate to? Where does it create value? And then what can the future look like when you play that out? And it led me to a very different set of conclusions. One of the unusual ones is I would argue we, to some extent, we've been living in a level zero, as I define it, metaverse for a couple thousand years. You know, the, the, the earliest monument ever made by human beings was made before agriculture. It's called, uh, it's in Turkey, and it's 10,000 years old by some records. That monument must have killed a bunch of people to make, but they chose to make it as a massive waste of resources in some ways. Why? Because the world of ideas, the world of meaning, the world beyond the real one mattered so much to that society. And if you look at our society now, everything from sport to music to culture, we care a hell of a lot about stuff that isn't real. I mean, who cares who wins the World Cup? It matters so much. It's geopolitically important. But does it matter? So my, my position is human beings have always had the power to create other realities. And the metaverse is our next attempt at connecting those other realities deeply to our society and our economy. And I don't think video games are the right are the right industry to look at to understand that evolution. They share a technical lineage, but the purpose of video game experiences and the purpose of our most important cultural experiences are quite different. And so that's led me to kind of maybe a contrary view on, on where the metaverse will go. I also then talk about, you know, plugging ourselves into machines and stuff, but that, that's chapter nine. You know, you don't have to read that far. I can't think of a better, you know, statement to end on uh, right here. And, you know, th again, thank you so much. Uh, for, for coming on. This has been a pleasure. Uh, we talked about this in the pre-show, but I think we're going to have to have you back on. You're doing so much in this space, but maybe next time we'll have this podcast in the M2 platform in one of these virtual worlds um, so people can really understand what it is you're building. And it, maybe this is a great time to just ask you, where can, where can listeners go to learn more about what you're building and see some of the demos you put out as well? So I'm being incredibly prolific on my Twitter um, to put out a lot of demos, a lot of links, a lot of new content and essays on these topics as well over time. Um, and you can DM me too. I've got my DMs open. If you uh, want to talk about this stuff or learn more, I try to answer every DM. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to be accessible. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Frank. Any, any last words from you? Otherwise, let's 
let's close it out. Um, but thank you again so much, Herman. No, thank you. It was a lot of fun and great questions. Thanks, guys. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.